Hello, listeners. My name is Brian Winston, and I'm the new host for the Unity in Christ program. I am very excited to be sharing God's Word and growing in faith with all of you. I hope that you all pray that God gives me the strength and wisdom to do His work through this program. I want to share with you an article that I read on the Internet a while ago. I was reminded of the following comment. It is more effective when preaching the gospel to non-believers to speak more about his love than our sin. The article read as follows. God desires the love from humans, his creation. We usually think about the Almighty or omniscient, the Almighty God, but he also has a heart and feelings. His final act to receive love from mankind was to send his son Jesus. Through 33 years of Jesus' life on earth, God showed his heart and love for me through Jesus. How can I reject him when I saw, heard, and felt his amazing love? I should love him more and more. So, can you feel the writer's love towards God? I'm not trying to disparage the writer's love for the Lord. However, don't you feel that there is something lacking in his confession? Let's take a deeper look into this response. First, the writer says the reason God sent Jesus was to receive love from mankind. Is that true? Of course God demonstrates his own love for us by sending his Son to earth while we were still sinners. But God did not do that to be loved by us. It was to show us his character. He did it because his name as David confesses in Psalms chapter 23, verse 3, He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And the psalmist says in Psalm 106, verse 8, Nevertheless, He saved them for the sake of His name, that He might make His power known. The reason why God sent His Son to us is because of His goodness, His loving kindness, and his mercy, not because he wanted to be loved in return, because God's very nature is love. He sent Jesus to us. God does not need our love. God is perfect. He lacks nothing. The universe is full of his perfection. He created us to love us, not to be loved by us.
Next, let's take a look at the statement in which the writer says, I ought to love him more and more. The article said that Jesus was God's final act to gain our love. But as we all know, God foretold sending his son Jesus to save us the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. It is not the final way, but the only way for all of us to be saved. In the article, it sounds like we ought to love God out of our pity for his efforts in loving us. Is God a God who begs for our love? Is he someone who feels thankful if we love him? What I want to share with you is this point. When we are sharing the gospel with non-believers, we should not emphasize one thing and neglect the other because we are trying to anticipate how they will receive the message. We ought to preach the gospel as it is. If we share a skewed view, then they will not come to know God correctly. They will misunderstand who God is. I believe this article expressed the author's understanding by emphasizing only God's love. As I have always said, in order for the good news to be good news, we should first hear about the bad news. In order to understand God's great love, we have to realize that we are all sinners who are under the penalty of death. Our acknowledgement that we are sinners is not preceded by God's love as merely a favor, a kind of passive favor, that when we do not accept it, we feel guilty. It says in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 38, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, the day when the church began, Peter spoke to people about their sin, and they were pierced at heart and asked Peter what to do to be saved. And Peter boldly proclaimed to them, Repent and be washed of your sin in the name of Jesus Christ. If we do not acknowledge that we are sinners, then we could never understand God's love.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Anchors in the Storm based on Acts chapter 27 verses 1 through 44. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. We have two chapters left in our study of Acts, and this one, Acts 27, is somewhat perplexing. So as we've read, studied this book, we've seen verse after verse and chapter after chapter of the gospel being proclaimed, people coming to Christ, churches being planted. But when we come to this chapter, we don't see any of that. The gospel's not preached. Nobody comes to Christ that we know of. The church is barely even mentioned. Instead, we have a long story of a storm and a shipwreck filled with all kinds of nautical and navigational details. But in this storm at sea, we see a powerful, beautiful picture of hope for every single one of our lives. So I just want to read the story. It's kind of long. It's 44 verses, but I just want to let God's Word do the work. As I read, I want to invite you to listen for, look for the depth of desperation in the story. So look for the moment at which everybody loses hope. And then listen to what happens right after that. So start in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adamatium, which was about to sail to the ports of the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the, the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground in the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set a sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 
So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. All right. So did you see it? The deepest point of despair in Acts 27. You look back at verse 20. It says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. We had no hope. And it's then that Paul speaks up and he says, well, one, you should have listened to me for the first time. And then two, take heart. Verse 23, this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. And then everything changes after that. Now here's why that's important. Here's why that statement from Paul is important for your life where you're sitting right now. First, let's go ahead and state the obvious. Followers of Christ face storms in this life, right? Like literally and figuratively, followers of Christ face storms in this life. We've seen this over and over again in the book of Acts. You think about Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 11. He basically recounts a summary of all the storms he's faced on his missionary journeys in Acts. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Not just once, three times. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This was Paul's life. You think about what we've just seen the last few weeks. We've seen Paul arrested, beaten, tried, imprisoned for two years. And after all that, you'd think the guy could get a break, but no, as he's transported to Rome, a massive northeaster, basically a hurricane, wrecks the ship he's on with a bunch of prisoners. 
And stories like this in the Bible are really important for us to read, particularly because we live in a day in the church where there are a lot of people who teach that if you follow God, everything will go well for you. And millions and millions of people here and around the world are buying into this theology that if you have faith in God, then everything will be great in your life. If you just have faith, you'll have your best life now. You'll have health and wealth and possessions and prosperity if you just have faith in God. And ladies and gentlemen, that is not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that followers of Christ will face all kinds of storms in this life. If prosperity teaching is true, then what are we to think of the Apostle Paul? That he he didn't have enough faith? Like Paul, if you just trust God, you wouldn't have had to write 2 Corinthians 11. Life would have been a breeze for you if you'd had faith. No, Paul knew followers of Christ face storms in this life. He actually said back in Acts 14.22 to a group of brand new Christians that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That was a beginning discipleship lesson for new believers. New believers in the New Testament knew that when they followed Christ, they would face storms in this life. And you know this, don't you? All across this room at different campuses, I'm I'm guessing most of us haven't been caught in the middle of a Northeaster this week, but many of you are living in the middle of a storm right now. Some of you, it's it's physical storms affecting your health. I think about individuals I've prayed with just the last couple of weeks who've received diagnoses that you never wanted to hear, never could have imagined hearing. Others of you walking through relational storms. I think about people I've prayed with the last couple of weeks when it comes to broken marriages and hurting homes. I think about emotional storms and struggles of all sorts. And for some of you, these storms come and go. Others of you feel like you're living in it and you can't get out of it. It's like that Northeaster has been hovering over you for weeks or months or years. And you don't know if it's ever going to let up. And this is one of the things I love most about the Bible because it doesn't gloss over the grim realities in our lives in this world. This story of a storm in Acts 27 is not disconnected from our experiences. It's near to every one of our experiences. And we have stories like Acts 27 to show us how to hope in God when we face the inevitable storms that this life brings, which is exactly what we need. We don't need somebody saying, just have faith and everything will go great. We know that's bogus. We need the Word of God helping us by saying, here's how to have faith when everything's not going great. That's why this moment, this turning point in Acts 27 is so helpful Because in what Paul says in verses 21 through 26, the Holy Spirit of God has given us at least five anchors to hold on to when we face the inevitable storms of this life. Anchors that you can hold on to and let your heart rest secure. Anchors that ground your heart in hope in the middle of whatever storm you face. So I want to show them to you. You might write them down, especially if you're walking through some kind of storm in your life or your family or your work right now. Or even if you're not, we all know. None of us knows what storm is waiting for us this week. Any one of us in this room and other campuses could receive a call one day this week that this or that has happened to somebody we love. Any one of us in this room could feel a lump under our skin this week that we've never noticed before that could change everything about the future for us. So none of us are immune 
the storms. And I, I just want to give you anchors to keep your heart from despair when the storm comes or in the storm you're walking through. So anchor number one, God's supreme sovereignty over all things, which means his power and authority over all all things. That's the first anchor for your life in the middle of the storm, in the middle of despair. Paul says, verse 23, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, keep in mind that Paul's talking here to a ship full of pagan soldiers and prisoners who worshiped all kinds of gods. Luke and Aristarchus are traveling with Paul, but besides them, very few, if any of these other passengers on the ship, believe in, worship the one true God. They worship all kinds of gods. And you can only imagine that in the course of this storm-ridden sea voyage, they've offered up prayers to all sorts of gods. So Paul steps on the scene and says, there's only one God who has power and authority over the wind and the waves, and it's my God. And that's huge. Paul knows that his God, the one true God, no other God holds the wind and the waves in his hands. You think about it, that's the only reason Paul knows they'll be saved. Because the God who controls the wind and the waves has said so. If Paul didn't believe God was sovereign, that he had all power and all authority over the wind and the waves, then Paul couldn't say this. So here's the first anchor for you in the middle of the storm. It's the rock-solid confidence that your God, the one true God overall, possesses supreme sovereignty, power, and authority over all things. Now, obviously, there's mystery that goes with this. After all, if God is sovereign over the storm, then why does God allow the storm? And we're going to come to this why question at the end of our time together. Before we get to the why question, we need to see the who question first. Who is ultimately sovereign over all things, including the hard things? And the answer the Bible gives is God. You, you think about this in another one of Paul's storms, so to speak. Turn with me real quick over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You've got to see this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, so this is right after that list of all the suffering Paul has experienced in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul starts talking in 2 Corinthians 12 about a thorn in his flesh. And we're not sure what this thorn was. It definitely seems like some sort of physical malady or physical pain in his life. But I want you to see what he says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12. So follow this with me. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7 Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness, the revelations I received, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, i.e. storms. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you hear that language? Verse 7. Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A thorn was given me, which begs the question, who gave it? And some might say, well, Satan did. And yes, the thorn is described as a messenger of Satan. But look at how Paul's praying. Paul's praying to God saying, God, please take this away. Because Paul knows, don't miss this, this is so key. Paul knows that Satan is not ultimately sovereign over this thorn, God is. And Paul knows the only way this thorn is going away is if God takes it away. And Paul knows that if it stays, it will stay because God is keeping it there for some reason, allowing it to stay, namely, here to show the sufficiency of his grace and strength in the middle of the storm. 
So don't tell Paul this is his best life. Now I've heard it said to people who struggle with Alzheimer's, for example, and I'll quote, maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family, but don't succumb to it. Instead, you say every day, my mind is alert. I have clarity of thought. I have a good memory. Every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. If you will rise up in your authority, you can be the one to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. Just start boldly declaring, God is restoring health unto me. I am getting better every day in every way. That is absurd. Can you imagine saying that to Paul? Paul, just tell yourself, every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. I'm getting better every day in every way. No. And Paul's got a thorn in the flesh, and God is the one who is sovereign over it being there, and God has a purpose in it. Now, there's mystery behind that purpose. We're going to come back to that in a minute. We don't always understand, no, why God in his sovereign wisdom and sovereign love allows some of the suffering that we undergo, but that doesn't mean we throw his sovereignty out the window. We look to God. We plead to God in the middle of suffering. Why? Because we know he alone has supreme sovereignty over all things. So in the middle of the storms that you're in right now or will be in the future, hold on tight to this anchor, the supreme sovereignty of God over all things. Please don't try to comfort yourself by thinking sickness or cancer is sovereign over all things or evil or injustice is sovereign over all things or Satan's sovereign over all things because he's not. No, this, the God you worship, the good, wise, loving, gracious, merciful, powerful God who you worship is in heaven and he alone reigns supremely sovereign over everything. Then, to realize the second anchor, to realize that this God is with you, anchor number two, God's constant presence with his people. So when you're in the storm, anchor your mind, your heart, your life in this reality. The God who's supremely sovereign over all things is constantly present with you. On the boat, in the middle of the storm, Paul says, an angel of my God came to me and he told me not to be afraid. We've seen this all over Acts. We see it all over Scripture when God continually comes to his people, says, do not be afraid. I'm with you. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I was talking just last week with a precious sister in Christ whose husband recently left her. And as I was praying for her, I just, Hebrews 13, 5 came to my mind. I will never leave you or forsake you. And I just prayed, God, I praise you that we don't ever have to worry whether or not you will leave us. Hear this, brother or sister, in the middle of the storms of this life, the God of the universe, the God who reigns supremely sovereign over all things, he will never abandon you. He will never leave you in the storm to face that struggle alone. He will always be with you. One Bible commentator on this passage said, here's the secret. Here was a man on two ships, one after the other, in storms, in stress and danger, with howling winds and creaking timbers and rending ropes and buffeting waves. Why was he quiet? Because the Lord was with him and he knew it. Oh, I pray you'll know it. That you will know. You're walking through a storm right now. You get a call this week, storm comes. You will know in that moment, in this moment, you are not alone. You are never alone. The God of the universe has promised to be with you. And it keeps getting better. So third anchor, so anchor your mind, your heart, and your life in God's constant presence with his people. And then in God's loving ownership of your life. I love Paul's language. In verse 23, he says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. Is that not a great phrase? So I don't just worship this God. I belong to this God. So you think about what that means. 
I mean, first think about how that happens. How does God become the owner of your life? You think about the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. This is how God takes loving ownership of your life. And this is really important, particularly for non-Christians this morning to hear. So every one of us in our lives has sinned against God, we've rebelled against God. As a result, we are separated, alienated from God. And if nothing changes, we will die and be separated from Him forever. But God has made a way for every one of us to be reconciled, reunited to Him. He's come to us in Jesus, God in the flesh. He's paid the price for our sin, for our rebellion. Jesus died on a cross for us so that when we put our faith in Jesus, we can be reconciled, reunited, brought back into relationship to God. We were bought by Him in that sense. And when we trust in Jesus, we belong to Him. So I invite you today, if you've never trusted in Jesus to save you from your sin, to reconcile you, reunite you to God, let today be that day in your life. You can walk out of this room, you can walk out of other campuses knowing today that you belong to God. And then think about what that means practically. Think, you know, what does that mean to belong to someone? My mind immediately went to my family, like my wife and kids, there's a sense in which they belong to me. So I started thinking about my family. My kids in particular, think about it. What does it mean for them to belong to me? Well, it means I'm responsible for them. It means I've taken personal responsibility to care for them, provide for them, protect them. It means I love them. I have a personal interest in their well-being. It means I work on their behalf. And I started thinking all those things. God's word says all those things about us as his children. Now just, just let this soak in. We're talking about the God who is supremely sovereign over all things. So Christian brother, sister, just let this soak in right where you're sitting, not just generally or the people around you, like right where you're sitting. The supreme God over the universe has taken personal responsibility to care for you, to provide for you, to protect you. He loves you. God has a personal interest in your well-being and he is working on your behalf. Is that not an awesome thought? So brother, sister in Christ, in the middle of the storms of this life, know this, you belong to God. And in a world of sin and suffering and evil and injustice and hurt and pain, God has assumed responsibility for your care and your provision and your well-being. Now hold on to this anchor, God's loving ownership of your life. You belong to him. And fourth anchor, so it just keeps getting better and better, Fourth, God's dependable promises in his word. God's dependable promises in his word. For Paul says, this God to whom I belong, whom I worship, has appeared to me and he has spoken. And then Paul tells them he's promised to bring not just me, but all of you through this storm. And then he says, look at his language in verse 26 in Acts chapter 27. He says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So Paul knew he had a word from God that he was going to make it through the storm and everybody else. And so he says, I, I trust God's going to be faithful to his word. Now, you might think, I wish God would come to me with a vision like that and tell me when my storm's going to end, how it's going to end. And God certainly has the power to come to us like that. But this is where I want us to realize that we have an advantage that Paul didn't have. So we may think it'd be helpful to have some sort of vision like Paul had, but this is where we need to realize we have something better. We're holding before us right now the Bible, which contains 66 books filled with countless, precious, priceless promises straight from God's mouth for you and me in the middle of our storms. 
I'll just give you a small sampling amidst the storms you're in. So hear God. He has spoken in his word. He has said to you in the middle of your storm, I give strength to the weary. I increase the power of the weak. Isaiah 40, 29. Isaiah 41, I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will be your helper. God said, I'll be your helper. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. He has said to you, Proverbs 3, trust in me with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge me and I will make your path straight. I take responsibility for that. He said, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear in Matthew 6? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first him, his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. That's why he says later, don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. In every situation, by prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4. Later in that chapter, it says, God will supply all your needs, all of them, all your needs, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We could keep going on and on and on, literally all day, looking at promises from God to us, spoken to us. So take heart. These are promises from God, and you can trust that it will be exactly as he has told. God will be faithful to every single one of his promises. He will prove faithful to bring you through the storm. Now, I want to be careful in saying that because I can't guarantee, and the Bible doesn't guarantee, that every storm you or I walk through will end in this world the way we want it to end. So I don't have a word from God. The, you don't have a word from God that the storm you're facing right now and your life or marriage or family or health will end in the way you want or end in this world for that matter. But I can guarantee you, the Bible guarantees you, that God will ultimately bring you through whatever storms you face in this world. And that's the last anchor we hold on to. So God's supreme sovereignty over all things, God's continual abiding constant presence with his people, God's loving ownership of your life, God's dependable promises in his word, and then finally, God's ultimate purpose in the world. So we come back to the question why that we mentioned earlier. Why is God allowing, or in even some sense ordaining, all these things that are happening to Paul? Arrestings, beatings, imprisonments, now storms. It's a question we see all over scripture. Why does God let Joseph be sold into slavery, then unjustly thrown into prison? Why does God let Job experience all the suffering he does? It's not just scripture, it's our lives. We all want to know why we walk through the storms we walk through. It's, that question is everywhere around this room and other campuses right now in the middle of storms. Why is this happening? And I want you to notice here that Acts 27 doesn't give us an answer to that question. We can guess how God was using this to strengthen Paul and his faith, how God was using this as a testimony to these prisoners and soldiers on board. We can only imagine hope that some of them maybe came to place their faith in God as a result of this story, but the text doesn't tell us that. We, we don't know why, which is often the case in our lives. We can guess, we can sometimes see ways God is using storms in our lives for our good, for others' good. But sometimes we can't see it, and we're left to wonder why. But this is where that Bible promise in Romans 8, 28 through 30 is so important. So remember what Paul, the same Paul, wrote there. Just a couple of years before he found himself on this ship, he wrote to the church of Rome, the place where he was headed on this ship, and he said to them, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Did you hear that? That the ultimate purpose of God is to conform us into the image of Christ in glory forever with him. This is God's ultimate purpose, and this is our greatest good. So one day, Christian, you and I are going to be free from all sin and free from all suffering. We're going to be glorified with Christ himself, and God is working all things toward that end. That is our hope. That is our eternal, everlasting hope. So follow this then. Our hope is not just in getting through storms in this life and having them end in this world. We know this is a world of sin and suffering. And in this world, there's a sense in which we're, we're not surprised by sin and suffering. We're not surprised by yet another terrorist attack in a place like Barcelona. We mourn over that. But we're not surprised that sin and evil and suffering are real in this world. And we're not surprised when we face storms in this world because we know we're not immune to them. But at the same time, we know, we know that there is a day coming, a new heaven and a new earth, when storms will be no more. And this is where we anchor our hope in God's ultimate purpose in the world. And this is huge for how we face the storms that we're in. Because I think about John Piper, pastor at Bethlehem Church, he was so helpful when he walked through cancer. And he described what we call commonly like cancer survivors in our culture. We use this term to describe somebody who faces the storm of cancer and they live through it. We call them a cancer survival. And obviously, I, we appreciate what that means in, in many senses, but, but we've got to realize that, that that kind of picture runs the danger of missing the point. We use this term, it almost leads to the idea that if you get cancer and you live, you've won. You've won the battle with cancer, but if you die, you lose. You've lost that battle. But based on Romans 8, 28 through 30, and all the Bible, that's not true. Because beating cancer is not about staying alive. That's what the world believes. And it's not true. Because follow this. If you live through cancer and you still aren't putting all your faith and all your hope and all your trust in God, you've not won anything. Your hope is still in things in this world. Your trust is still in yourself. You haven't won a thing at all. In fact, I would say that cancer has won because you're still convinced that you can face this life and its storms on your own. And when it comes to the ultimate storm of death to which we will all eventually succumb, you're still putting your hope in yourself. But if on the other hand, if you face cancer and in the middle of it, you hold fast and you hold firm to the hope of God and his supreme sovereignty over all things, his constant presence with you, his loving ownership of you, his dependable, faithful promises to you, then you win. It doesn't matter if you live or die at that point because with your hope in God and your life in God and your trust in God, you have nothing to fear. Live or die, it doesn't matter. So this is why whenever I've spent time with followers of Christ facing death due to cancer or other things, like I mentioned my good friend last week, I've been humbled by the hope I see in them in the middle of the storm. I think about sitting by numerous people's bedsides as they're facing death. And I ask them how they feel, how they're doing, and they look at me and they say, I'm ready to be with God. That's what it means to be a cancer survivor. 
When you find out you have fluid around your lungs and you say, my hope is in God. When you find out you have a massive tumor with a dismal prognosis and you say, my hope is not in my odds. My hope is in my God. When hospice is brought in and you sit there in a quiet home struggling to breathe, and yet when you breathe, you say, my hope is in God. Until that moment when breath is no more and your last thought is, my hope is in God. That is a win. That's an eternal win. Because you'll miss this. You've anchored your life in God's ultimate purpose in your life to bring you to him, to bring you to be with him in glory for 10 trillion years and on and on after that in a place where there will be no more sin and no more evil and no more suffering and no more pain and no more death in a place where God will literally wipe every tear from our eyes and in a place where there will never be any storm again. I urge you brothers and sisters, anchor your hope there. Don't anchor your hope here in this world. Anchor your hope there in God's promise.
Gospel Ministries awaits for your participation for listener survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. It will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona 85029. This survey ends November 15th. We wait for your participation and thank you for your input. Following is the program called Questions from the Bible. Hello, listeners. How are you today? I am Susan Holtgrew, your host for the Questions from the Bible program. When we read the Bible, we read about men and women who received God's calling and we can see how God used them to accomplish his spiritual missions. Is there any scene in a story in the Bible that has made an impression on you? I, for one, can think of several that have left an impression on me. One that comes to mind is when God calls out to Moses from a burning bush. Another is when Gideon was thrashing wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O man of valor. The reason why I think of these two scenes of Moses and Gideon is because when they did receive the calling from God, instead of obeying and saying, Yes, Lord, they tried to make excuses and not listen to the call of God. They kept saying that they were not the strongest but the weakest. I feel empathy towards them because it reminds me of myself. Regardless, there is a scene in the Bible that made me feel awestruck when God says, Who should I send out and who would walk ahead on our behalf? In today's program, we will analyze this question. Do you know where this scene is from the Bible? Yes, it is where God calls the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, the passage describes how God chose Isaiah as his prophet. In some ways, it is like reading about his testimony. For as Isaiah sees a vision, he also hears God's voice. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, it states, Then I heard the Lord say, Whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? 
I answered, Here am I, send me. When Isaiah had received God's calling, he did not make excuses of why he could not answer God's calling, as Moses and Gideon did, but instead he stated clearly that he would go and to send him. This is because the prophet Isaiah had experienced the holiness of God. Let us take a brief look at here am I. The Hebrew word is hineni. It is two words put together. Hine, which means behold, and ani, which means me. Now, let's look at the word behold, which means stop whatever you are doing and look this way, or at me. When hineni is used in scripture, it means I'm here. Whatever you say, I will do. When we take a look at chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, it shows the scene where he experiences Isaiah experiences God. Looking at verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the whole temple. King Uzziah was the tenth king of Judah, and, aside from King Solomon, was a great king who refortified the country economically and reorganized the army. When a ruler like this died, the whole country was thrown into confusion and chaos. During this time of chaos and conflict, Isaiah saw God sitting on his throne high and exalted. Although kings of the earth may die, the eternal king, our God, is sitting on his throne. Our God cannot compare to anyone else, for he is holy. The prophets who obeyed the Lord cannot look at God and instead covered their faces before the holiness of God. Even the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The prophet Isaiah had been able to see a glimpse of this glory that filled the earth. Isn't this an amazing experience to have had? When Isaiah was called to be God's prophet, he had seen God's glory. This is the origin of true worship. Worship is not about us. It is not about the kind of work we are doing for the church, but it is more about God and giving him all the glory. True worship is about giving your best to God and moving towards him because you crave his presence. Do you experience this kind of worship in your quiet time with God? Do you crave only His present, and yet you're too busy with all your volunteer work that you lose sight of God, who should be the real focus of your worship? When we experience true worship, and we get to see our God who is holy, there is something that will definitely happen. We will be able to see our true selves. Isaiah, who had seen God and experienced his presence, puts it this way in verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 17, John, who had seen Jesus, said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
When we see God who is holy, we realize how sinful we are, and we start to realize the state of our sinful existence. Before we experienced the Lord's presence, we were used to comparing ourselves to others and how right our opinions were in conversations with others. We also judged others who we thought were evil, being of an opinion that we were better than them. However, when we stand in front of God, that is when we can truly see our sinful nature. After Isaiah confessed his sins, verse 7 states, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah heard God's voice after he saw him who is holy and realized how sinful he was and confessed his sins. In verse 8, Isaiah hears God's voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? And he answers, Hineni, send me. Where is Isaiah going and where is God sending him? The answer to this is in verse 9. So he told me to go and give the people this message. God called Isaiah to give his chosen people a message, and this is the reason why he called Isaiah. Even when we met God and received forgiveness from him to become a new person, we have a tendency to just stay there in one place. When Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Jesus on the mountain and experienced his greatness, we all remembered what their reactions were, right? Peter said, let us make tents here. He wanted to make a tent and stay in one place. However, when God said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Peter heard and listened. Later, Jesus called Peter to be an apostle for this world. Jesus said, you are the salt and the light of this world. Therefore, it is our duty to receive his calling and go forth in the world, just as Peter and the other disciples did. Let us reflect on our own faith when we think of the question that we studied today. Whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? Just like Isaiah did when he saw God during the chaotic time of King Uzziah's death, it should not matter what kind of situation we are in. Instead, we should reflect on whether or not we are standing pure in the presence of God. I pray that just as Isaiah stated, Here am I, send me, we can also say, Hineni, to our Lord, and answer our calling from Him in the same way. This concludes today's program in our Questions from the Bible series. I look forward to our next program with you with a new question from the Bible.
It is not pleasant to talk about sin, 
Furthermore, telling someone he or she is a sinner and that he or she cannot avoid death can be difficult. However, if we omit that part, then we are only delivering half of the gospel, and it will lead others to misunderstand God. In Matthew chapter 25, there is the parable of the servants who received talents. The servants received five talents, two talents, and one talent, according to their ability. The servant who received five talents earned five more, and the servant who received two talents earned two more, and both were commended by their master. However, the servant who received one talent buried it in the ground and returned it to his master and was rebuked. Listen to what the servant who brought back one talent said in Matthew chapter 25, verses 24 and 25. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. How does the servant understand his master? He says he is a hard man, thinking he is a man who is rough, fierce, and even violent. He also describes his master as a hard man who reaps where he did not sow and gathers from where there was no scattering of seed, thinking him a man of bad character. Yet, is this the right description of the master? No. Let us listen to the master's saying in verse 26. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Yes, the servant has misunderstood his master. The master was not rough or fierce or violent. However, the servant had this misconception of his master. Because he misunderstood his master, he did not follow the master's will and by that, he was scolded for being lazy. Do you know what happened to this servant? We find out what happened to the servant who misunderstood his master and did not follow his will in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, where the master says, Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, that's right. He was thrown into the outer darkness and wept and gnashed his teeth. Similarly, we must fully understand God. We cannot overlook the fact that we are sinners who will die and choose to just look on his great love. If that is our foundation of faith, then we are misunderstanding the Lord. God's love is not merely a favor. God loved us enough to give his only son, but at the same time, God hated sin so much that he put his only son on the cross for our sins. If we do not realize our sin, then we cannot understand his love. Do not misunderstand God by looking only at his love. My wish is that we all understand God's love for us came in the form of his son who died for our sins. In other words, God's love is agape love, a love of self-sacrifice. So there is no misunderstanding when sharing the gospel we must admit that we are sinners, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, as written in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. 
This ends today's Unity in Christ program. I hope to see you all again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless.